Well, I have the opportunity today to uh, introduce once again a good friend of mine. His name is Luke Bobo. We are uh, nearing the end. We're at week eight of ten in our Philemon project. Uh, and so today, Luke Bobo was uh, scheduled to be here with us in person, but uh, issues related to COVID and the need to care for some members of his extended family meant that he's not able to travel right now. And so we're going to hear Luke preach. He was gracious enough to work with Billy and sit in front of a camera earlier this week, record a sermon for us from God's Word. And um, you remember a few weeks ago, Luke preached to us about becoming one, becoming one who dignifies others. And today we'll hear part two, becoming one, becoming one who does what? Well, let's find out. Uh, we'll be finding that out from uh, Micah chapter 6. Luke is going to read the scriptures for us uh, once our video begins, and he's going to preach to us. So I want to take an opportunity to pray now for us as we hear God's word read and as we hear it proclaimed by our brother Luke. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, the ways that you work in our lives and superintend every detail. And so it's by your goodness and sovereignty working in my life that, that the path of my life intersected with that of Luke Bobo um, in the late 1990s as we sat together over the scriptures and studied and learned together. And I thank you for the friendship that has lasted over decades now. And I praise you that now uh, that friendship with Luke can become a blessing to new friends and new family here that you have given me and Tricia and our children at InTown. Lord, we ask that you would teach us today. Give us new ears to hear your word in a way that we haven't heard it before. Give us new willingness to love every truth that you teach us through your servant, Luke Bobo, today. Give us new willingness to obey and practice everything that you call us to. Give us new joy and strength because some of what you call us to will be difficult. It may be uncomfortable. It may overwhelm us. That's not an altogether bad thing, Lord. For us to feel that we are not enough, well, that's actually the beginning of true faith in Christ. Help us to know that we will never be enough, but we will never be alone. We will be with Christ, and He will be in us, and His Spirit will be giving us power and changing us. And so, because we are in Christ, and Christ is enough, then we will find that we can be enough, not because of us, but because of him. Would you help us to know that and celebrate it and treasure it and live it? Take us one step closer to that joy and that power today through the preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. Let me first thank Jimmy uh, publicly for this idea. I thank him for the invitation to join him and Thurman and Stephen uh, on this project. 
I thank him publicly for honoring us by inviting us to have a seat at the table to shape this series. What an honor it has been. Of course, I would not see you guys again until March 28th, so I wanted to say uh, this now. So the title of the sermon is Becoming One, Part Two. Becoming One, Part Two. Let me encourage you to turn to Philemon, of course. Turn to Philemon, and you'll keep your finger there. And then I invite you to turn to the Old Testament, the minor prophet Micah. So keep your finger in Philemon, turn to Micah, the Old Testament, the minor prophet Micah, chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 6 through 8. Micah 6, verse 6 through 8. I'm, I'm going to read this from the Message Bible, uh, crafted by Eugene Peterson. Again, Micah 6, verse 6 through 8, Old Testament. Again, I'm reading from the Message Bible. And we find these words recorded. How can I stand before God and show proper respect to the high God? Should I bring an armload of offerings topped off with yearling calves? Would God be impressed with thousands of rams with buckets and barrels of olive oil? Would he be moved if I sacrifice my firstborn child, my precious baby, to cancel my sin? but he's already made it plain to you how to live, what to do. Let me read that again. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do. What God is looking for in men and women is quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love and don't take yourselves too seriously. Take God seriously. So the last time I encouraged us to become those or one who treats others with dignity and respect, because every person, every person you meet is made in God's image. And this should be a slam dunk, quite frankly, for Christians, because we believe the Bible is true. And therefore, we're called to live it out. Today, in this becoming one part two, sermon, I want to encourage us to become those who do biblical justice. Notice I did not say social justice. We get so wrapped around the axle, we get so bothered when folks say social justice. Can we agree on biblical justice? I wonder if Satan just laughs at us for getting so bothered by the minutiae. I don't like, quite frankly, the phrase social justice because I think it's redundant. To do biblical justice, beloved, automatically has social implications. In town, are you all becoming those who do biblical justice? I went to y'all's website to see what in town is all about. I found this page that says, who are we? Who are we? Let me read it to you. In Town Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia, is a Christian congregation serving the Atlanta community and seeking, engaging, I love that word engaging, and encouraging others through a life-changing Christian journey. So far, so good. 
We seek to be a loving, love that word loving, friendly community that worships God and serves others. Sirs, that's the second time I heard the word sirs. We place a high priority on teaching from the Bible and following the example of Jesus. It's getting even better in town. Our vision is to impact and renew Atlanta and beyond. That's wonderful. With the transforming message of Jesus Christ through words and actions. It's really getting good. And I love this Southern hospitality piece. Come as you are. We love to get to know you. Oh, that's beautiful. There are a few things that stuck out to me about this who we are. What a lovely identity statement in town. To engage means to be engaged in the human affairs of Atlanta. To serve means to be engaged in the human affairs of Atlanta. Following the example of Jesus also stood out to me. Are you all in town following Jesus' example in word and deed? Or through words and actions as your who we are statement states? I especially love your, your vision. It says our vision is to impact and renew Atlanta and beyond. This too means to be engaged in the human affairs of Atlanta. This means to come close. To renew would take some effort or elbow grease, as my grandfather, Henry Bobo, once said. In town, are you folks living up to your identity statement, your who we are statement? In town, to be engaged in the human affairs of Atlanta and its residents means doing biblical justice will be necessary and essential. In town to serve, to impact and renew Atlanta means you must be engaged. You must be engaged your words in doing biblical justice because institutions are broken and sinful. And this reminds me of Divided by Faith, written by Michael Emerson, Divided by Faith. He also wrote United by Faith. He surveyed white and black Christians across this country in Divided by Faith. And what he found was White Christians said, we can solve this race problem with individual relationships. The black Christians said, yes, it's individual relationships, but also institutions. See, we, we must seek justice in our institutions. Let me say it this way, and I'm quoting from a document called The 12 Elements of Economic Wisdom. Listen carefully. The church is not the church if it does not stand for biblical justice. The church is not the church if it does not stand for biblical justice. Several white guys smarter than me wrote that statement. A church of Jesus Christ is not that is not engaging in biblical justice is an oxymoron. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. A church of Jesus Christ not engaging in biblical justice is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. A church that does not engage in biblical justice is one that God doesn't recognize as his church in town. Are you guys engaged in biblical justice? And that's a question that demands a yes or no response. So what is biblical justice? 
Very simply, biblical justice is righting wrongs fairly and impartially. Biblical justice is giving a person his or her fair and impartial due. Isn't that why Lady Justice has a blindfold on? Because justice is meant to be impartial. And maybe that's why I love the TV show, The Voice, because the coaches are turned their backs to the artists. So you'll, you only hear their voice. So you can't make a, a judgment based on how they look. Impartial, fair is some of the key words when we think about biblical justice. Are you in town becoming one who does biblical justice? So what does biblical justice look like? Let me share three examples of what biblical justice looks like. One of these stories features a covenant grad. And the last example is based on a company right in your backyard there in Atlanta. One of our former part-time workers that made the flourish where I work and a, covenant grad now, and a covenant grad now works in DC. One of our former part-time workers that made the flourish where I work, let me repeat that. And also a covenant grad, he now works in Washington, DC. On the day of the insurrection on January the 6th, 2021, he was forced to vacate his office because of security and safety reasons. While he was vacating, he noticed the son of one of his major donors participating in the insurrection on our US Capitol. Let's call this brother, let's call him John. John turned in his donor's son to the local authorities. Why? Because his, this donor's son was breaking the law. Turning in this donor's son was doing biblical justice. Turning in this donor's son was in the words of Spike Lee's film years ago, doing the right thing. Here's a second illustration of what biblical justice looks like. So we're getting some work done at our home. It was really noisy and annoying. So I, don't, I went into the office for a brief time. So I had finished my work. I put on my jacket and on my jacket was the letters from the black Greek fraternity that I joined in college, Phi Beta Sigma. So I'm wearing my bright blue jacket with Phi Beta Sigma, the Greek letters proudly displayed. And I run into a white dude, his name is Ryan. I run into him in the hallway and his eyes lit up. His eyes lit up because Ryan is a fraternity brother. He had joined Phi Beta Sigma. And that's not unusual. We have many white brothers in our fraternity. Ryan went on to tell me that he used to be a kicker for his college football team. And Ryan also told me that he heard his fair share of racial jokes from his granddad. Because Ryan has come close, he knew how to respond during those water cooler conversations when his white peers would say derogatory things about African-Americans. You've heard those degrading remarks, I'm sure you have. Maybe around your Thanksgiving dinner table where there's only white folks, or maybe you've heard similar derogatory statements in the boardroom when there's only whites present. But when Ryan hears the derogatory and demeaning comments about 
African-American brothers and sisters, he speaks up and says, that's not right. You see, Ryan is becoming one who does biblical justice, my friends. In town, you can no longer say, I don't know what to do. Stephen, Thurman, Jimmy, and myself have been telling you what to do for the last eight to nine weeks. And I know my friend Jimmy cannot say that because it was his idea to do this Philemon project, which means he knew what to do. And if that's not enough, Micah 6, 8 reads again from the ESV, God has told you, oh man, oh woman, what is good? What is morally good? And what does the Lord require of you? Oh man, oh woman, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. If you come close and listen to the problem your child had, you would know what to do, wouldn't you? I'm sure you would. When our daughter was accused of plagiarism in that science teacher's class, by that white male, we, we knew what to do. We had to go to the school to defend our daughter's honor. If you've ever been to a little league, a little league basketball game where the refs were favoring one team over another, you might become loud and boisterous and almost get tossed out of the gym for making so much noise like I did, like yours truly. Why did I become so loud? because I knew what to do. My son played on the team that was not getting their fair share of the ref's call, the ref's calls. I was, I was witnessing injustice. If you came close and listened to an elderly parent, you would know what to do. Why is it? Why is it that my white brothers and sisters are quick to say, I don't know what to do when it comes to serving their African-American brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it because it's uncomfortable? Is it because it's costly? Is it because you might not, you might have to give up something? Is that is that the reason? Is it because you don't see us truly as your brothers and sisters in Christ? To love your neighbor as yourself means one must be willing to do the uncomfortable, to do what's costly on behalf of another brother or sister in Christ, regardless of a person's skin color, sexual orientation, nationality, ethnicity, you name it. Do I need to remind you in town that the words serve and serving appear in your who are we statement? are in your who we are statement, excuse me. Is this who you are in town? If this is not who you are in town, let me encourage you to take that down from the World Wide Web. Let me give you another example of what biblical justice looks like. And this um, involves or takes place or um, brings into focus, that's what I'm looking for, this brings into focus hometown Coca-Cola. And I know their headquarters is located there because I had a chance to visit them or this company years ago. One of Atlanta's finest, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in the 1960s. 
Typically, the city of a Nobel Peace Prize winner publicly honors him or her. So typically, a city with a Nobel Peace Prize winner publicly honors him or her. However, as one article states, social conservatives in Atlanta refuse to support an integrated dinner honoring Dr. King. So Coca-Cola, you might say, put its giant corporate foot down and said, not on my watch. Shortly after King won the Nobel Prize, event invitations went out to Atlanta's elite and almost no one responded. So the mayor at that time, Mayor Ivan Allen, appealed to the former president of Coca-Cola, Robert Woodruff, Robert Woodruff. Although he was no longer in charge, he was still the most powerful person in town. The mayor told him, we have a real problem with this dinner. We're not selling any tickets. It's going to be an embarrassment to Atlanta. So what did Woodruff do? He used his position, his privilege, his power for the common good. He asked Coca-Cola CEO, J. Paul Austin, to intervene. J. Paul Austin was very strong on, on Atlanta, not giving in to this kind of pettiness and racism, and dare I say, injustice. The New York Times published a front page story about the lukewarm response King was getting from his own hometown. And Austin decided to flex Coca-Cola's muscle. Austin said this, Coca-Cola cannot stay in a city that's going to have this kind of reaction and not honor a Nobel Peace Prize winner. The ultimatum worked. The event quickly, quickly sold out. Almost 1,600 people attended the dinner held at Atlanta's Dinkler's Hotel to honor King and his Peace Prize. God gave Woodruff and Austin power and prestige and a platform. And I don't even know if these guys were Christians, but that really doesn't matter because they use their power and their prestige and a platform and their platform for the common good. They use their clout, their connections, their power, their platform, their prestige for a just cause. So in town, God has given many of you power, prestige, and a platform. So the question that begs to be answered is, how are you stewarding your power, your prestige, and your platform for the good of others? Let me say it this way in town. You see, we are a public embarrassment to God when we do not do biblical justice. And I think my friend, my pastor friend, Chris Brooks is right. He pastors in Detroit, Michigan. Brooks says this, the church has a major PR problem. Let me ask you, dear brothers and sisters, what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves? Think about this quote as you think about that question. Think about this quote. Justice is love distributed. Do you love me? 
Do you love Thurman? Do you love Stephen? Do you love those who look like Stephen and me and Thurman? If you do, you will become one who does biblical justice on our behalf and on the behalf of others. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative once said, once we see something or learn of something that is unjust, we are implicated. A trained lawyer who tries to get innocent men and women exonerated from death row, he said, we are implicated to do something. We're implicated, beloved friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, to do biblical justice. Last week in the Zoom chat space, Kevin asked, if as a white male, and thank you, Kevin, for this question, if as a white male, I saw a black male being racially profiled or mistreated by the police, should I, Kevin asked, as a white male step in? Again, thank you, Kevin, for that question, because I think you were trying to help me to help our white brothers and sisters there in town to see, you were trying to help us all to see that the answer is yes. If as a white person, you see anyone, if you see anyone being mistreated or profiled, you must, it's your moral obligation. This is good. This is the moral good to step in because that's the just thing to do. That's the loving thing to do. Much like the Good Samaritan stepped in after he saw a man beaten and left for dead, he stepped in. He disrupted his schedule. He stepped in. That's doing biblical justice. Listen carefully. For people like Thurman, Stephen, and I, we're typically invited to the planning table after the plan and direction has been determined. This typically applies not just to African-Americans, but anyone that's not a white male. And I'm sure the sisters in the audience can attest to that. For Jimmy to invite Thurman, Stephen, and I at the beginning of this process of planning what this Philemon project would look like is an illustration of justice. Actually, if you use your imagination for Jimmy to invite Thurman, Stephen, and I at the beginning of this process of planning what this Philemon project would look like, this is really an example of reparations. And so I know we get bothered when we, when we hear the word social justice, but I've offered an alternative, alternative. What about biblical justice? And we also get hot and bothered when we hear reparations. And I need to ask you, those who get hot and bothered or agitated when they hear that word, have you done your own self-study of the word? Have you studied that word through the biblical worldview? Have you studied that word through your precious and lovely Reformed theology? And it is precious and lovely. If you do the study, you will see that reparations is a biblical concept. Just look at Luke 19, what Zacchaeus, he practiced reparations by giving people what he had defrauded from them, but he gave back more than what he initially took. Some scholars say that he gave back so much money that Zacchaeus had very little to live on. Zacchaeus understood reparations. 
So where's justice in Philemon, you might be asking. So we're finally at Philemon. I'm sure you're glad. So where's justice in Philemon, you might be asking. First, justice is behind Paul's request of Philemon in verses 15 and 16. You're probably familiar with these verses, but let me read them for you again. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. I have no idea what version that is. So what do I mean that this idea of justice, this idea of justice is behind this request Paul makes of Philemon? You see, Jesus was unjustly treated on the cross. God's wrath due to us was meted out on Jesus because God demanded justice for all our egregious and unjust crimes. Concerning what Christ endured for us, Philemon was morally obligated to do as Paul requested. The just thing for Philemon to do in response to Jesus' unjust treatment on the cross was to do as Paul requested. And that's why Paul said in verse 21, I'm sure you would do even more than this. Concerning what Christ has done for us, should compel us to do even more than this. Again, where's justice in Philemon, you might be asking. Let me quote from Karen Swallow Pryor's book. And that's a name you should Google. Karen Swallow Pryor and her book on reading well. It's a book on virtues. Her chapter on justice is worth the purchase alone. She says this in the chapter on justice. She writes, now listen carefully. If justice is making things right, then seeing people rightly is a form of justice. Then seeing people rightly is a form of justice. This should remind you of the Imago Day. Every person has inherent dignity and worth and value and honor. Paul is telling his son in the ministry, his co-worker, his dear brother in Christ, Philemon, to see Onesimus rightly. As a covenant member, Philemon, Onesimus is no longer a slave. He's better than a slave. See him rightly, brother. He is now a dear brother in Christ. Paul is demanding Philemon to practice biblical justice. Paul is commanding Philemon to see Onesimus rightly, to see Onesimus justly, not as a slave, but rather as a dear brother in Jesus Christ. Maybe that is your hangup in town. Maybe you don't see others who look differently from you as rightly as prior suggests. I just don't get it in town. You're getting sound theology expounded from the pulpit at Intown. I know you are. I know that for certain because you, you have a wonderful, bright, and humble pastor in Dr. Jimmy Agin. So again, back to the first week when I first said this, we read the same Bible, guided by the same Holy Spirit. But yet, my friends, 
you in town are slow to get what God requires of us in Micah 6, 8, to do justice. In town, maybe your hangup is not knowing the significance of the cross. Do you remember what happened at the cross? Crimes were committed by us, lawbreakers, covenant breakers, chronic lawbreakers, chronic covenant breakers. God, the righteous judge, was owed justice. Instead of justice being meted out against us, justice was meted out on his son, the non-criminal, the innocent one, the guiltless, the sinless one. God meted out justice on his son on our behalf. Maybe in town, you, you all don't understand the gospel. Is, is that it? Maybe your hang up in town is that you do not know God's heart. You cannot read the Old Testament and not see these two words repeated often, righteousness and justice. In preparing a sermon out of Jeremiah, I read that book twice, all 52 chapters. And in that book, in the Minor Prophets, we see this couplet, justice and righteousness repeatedly. Christ's sacrifice paid our debt sin, our sin debt. First Peter 3.18 puts it this way in the ESV. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen to the same verse from the granddaddy of them all, the King James Version. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. You see, doing the right thing is doing the just thing. Doing the just thing is doing the right thing. We owe God to become those who do biblical justice because of what God has done for us and what he continues to do for us day in and day out, moment by moment, God continues to bless us. We owe it to God. I'm sure you've heard Jimmy say, when you think about the indicatives of scripture, what God has done for us in Christ, then we are compelled to obey him. That's the imperatives of scripture. Indicatives motivate us to obey the imperatives. Doing the right thing is doing the just thing. Doing the just thing is doing the right thing. Maybe that's why the apostle James writes in James 4, 17. So whoever does the right thing, so whoever knows the right thing to do, it says, and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. So whoever knows the right thing to do, James Wright, and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. In town, I beg of you, I plead with you, become those who do biblical justice. And there's an opportunity right under your noses to do biblical justice. So I asked Jimmy to give me the zip code where in town is located. And I asked for neighboring zip codes as well. In town, as you know, is located in zip code 30329. The median household income of this zip code area is $58,000. 
with 14% of the families in this area, in this zip code, 30329, living in poverty. So what do you hear when you hear the word poverty? Of course, some of these folks probably have made some bad decisions, bad financial decisions. I grant you that. But I also hear injustice. Comparing those who live in the 30329 zip code to those living in the 30326 zip code, their median household income is a whopping $108,000. $108,000. So let me ask you in town, doesn't that big disparity demand some checking into, some investigative work? Doesn't that sound suspicious? Yes, sure, maybe the folks living in 30326, that zip code, earn this standard of living fair and square. I grant you that, that's possible. However, I also know we live in a fallen world. We live in a world of greed. We live in a world of trying to get one upmanship on others. I would bet that some injustice has happened in the past, like redlining that I talked about a week or so ago, or restrictive covenants that has led to this big disparity. Don't be naive in town. Redlining practices have been outlawed, but they still take place. Redlining is still taking place today. Just it's a bit more sophisticated. God loves justice in town. God loves justice in town. God loves justice in town. God's people, God's redeemed people love the things he loves. In town, you are God's redeemed people. <laughs> Congratulations. Do you love justice as his redeemed people? If you do not love God or love biblical justice, you will not become those who do biblical justice and you will continue to sit on the sidelines and ask, we don't know what to do. But if you do love God and love biblical justice, because God loves biblical justice, then you in town will live out your identity statement your who we are statement in town. If you do love God and love biblical justice because God loves biblical justice, then you in town will become those who do biblical justice. May God bless you and may you be compelled to do biblical justice is my prayer. Amen. So at this point in our service, we typically respond with a focus on offering. But before we do that, let's take a moment and unpack what we just experienced. Knowing people the way that I do, and even just sort of examining my own heart, uh, some of us may be ex ex responding to what we just heard from Luke with joy, saying, you know what, I've I've been around churches for a long time and I've never heard such an honest challenge to justice from 
a black brother in Christ. I have been waiting for this for a long time, and I'm incredibly excited. Some of us aren't responding that way. Some of us are responding with a sense of kind of a how dare you? How dare you tell me that I don't understand the gospel? How dare you insinuate that my church may not have fully understood what was accomplished at the cross? How dare you imply that we are slow to get what justice requires? Kind of a a reaction of defensiveness. Some of us are, are kind of torn maybe between those poles, like you're not sure quite whether to celebrate, I've been waiting for this for such a long time, or kind of get get very defensive, stiffen up. Who is is this person accusing me of such terrible things? I don't know how you're responding. Um, I do know a bit of what you're experiencing, however. First of all, we're experiencing life in the body of Christ. When you read the Scriptures, you read that, that God's people, there have always been moments of tension, of, of leaders among God's people having things to say to God's people that might not be easy to hear. Some of those leaders are called prophets. And I would submit to you that if, if, if you're responding right now in a, in a way that says, I think Luke may have overstated the case, maybe he, he was you know, being a little extreme. Read the Old Testament prophets again, and uh, we'd be pretty uncomfortable hearing from prophets if we were uncomfortable hearing from our brother Luke. We're also experiencing what it's like to be a church unified by faith in Christ. We're not unified by our race. We're not unified by our experiences of fairness or justice in this life. We've had different experiences of those things. We're not unified by the solutions that we might be drawn to for the problems we see in the world. We aren't unified by what we think is the best way to speak publicly about some of these issues. Luke will use phrases and say things in a way that I will never choose to because we're different people, we're different personalities different backgrounds and expertise. He can talk about economics because he has expertise in that area. I try to steer clear because I'm just kind of a baby (laughs) when it comes to those things. But we're one in Christ. We're brothers in Jesus. And, And part of that unity means bearing with the discomfort of styles, personalities, experiences, backgrounds that we may not share. Part of what you're experiencing, though, today is it's, it's the gospel. It is, it is you bearing discomfort because of someone else's failing. You heard Luke speak frequently and passionately, and you could tell there's pain in, in hearing, I don't know what to do, hearing white Christians say, we don't know what to do. Now, where does Luke hear that? I'll tell you one place he's heard it. He's heard it from me. And so if today, being challenged for having asked that question, you're thinking, but I never asked that question. You're experiencing discomfort because of my offense. 
Luke heard me say that phrase in a prayer last week. Prayer, the way I worship, caused my brother concern and made him uncomfortable, and we spent the week talking about it. It would have been very easy for Luke to say, I'm out. I'm tired of hearing people like you ask this question. I'm out. I'm giving up. I'm gone. It would have been easy for me to say, brother, give me a break. You're critiquing my prayers now? It would have been so easy for us to walk away from one another because of awkwardness or discomfort. Or it would have been easy just kind of sweep it under the rug. Hey, brother, don't mention this to anybody, okay? And whatever you do, don't weave it through your sermon. (laughs) On the cross, Jesus bore not only discomfort, but absolute judgment for things that he did not do. I want to thank you today for being Christ-like and bearing discomfort because of something I said, something I did. Do you see the gospel in that, that you are being Christ to me? If you feel discomfort today because of something you never thought or said or did, and you bear it simply because we are one out of covenant love, that is what Christ has done for us. And as Luke said, it's the indicatives that motivate the imperatives. It's knowing the story of what Christ has done for us that will fill us with enough joy to stick with it in the hard parts that would cause us to lean into the kinds of challenges that we hear from Scripture, from prophets, from apostles, and from brothers like Luke. 